one of the aspects of Isaiah's prophecy that we have seen is that Isaiah uses something that we have called typological fulfillment. I know it's been a while since we've seen that. That was back in Isaiah chapter 7, if you remember, where we saw this uh, prophecy about a sign that would be given to the people and a virgin would conceive and bear a child and his name would be called Emmanuel, which means God is with us. And we observed in that that there was a present fulfillment at that time for that audience so that they would know that God was going to deliver them from the Assyrians. Remember, our context of Isaiah has been an Assyrian threat. But we also noted from that that they were looking also forward, as the uh, writer there, Matthew, points out, that It wasn't just simply spoken of in the days of Isaiah, but that there was going to be a greater fulfillment of one to come who was going to be born of a virgin and deliver the people from their sins. And so there was a present fulfillment in many of the words that were said, but it was written in such a way that you would say, there's something more going on. And as we read Isaiah chapter 33, and really as we go forward in Isaiah now, we're going to need to keep this in our minds about Isaiah prophesying about things in the present time that picture a deliverance from Assyria. But at the same time, there are things said that couldn't have been fulfilled at that time so that you read it and go, well, there must be something more that's going to happen. Something more is going to take place. And so we're going to observe those things as we go. And I'll remind you of this concept of typological fulfillment, not only tonight, but in some future lessons. Now, as we're in Isaiah 33, uh, here is the problem of the prophecy is that Isaiah is preaching to Judah, the southern nation, the Jewish people, and Assyria is the world power. It's about 701 B.C. And Assyria is a major threat. Twenty years earlier, they have already wiped out the northern nation called Israel and taken them off the land and is now continuing to threaten now the southern nation is beginning to take cities and take land. And so that becomes this big problem. And the biggest problem of all, as we've seen in many of these chapters, is that the people are refusing to trust God. God has been saying over and over again, if you'll rely upon me, I will save you. I will keep you from the Assyrians and you'll be okay. But rather than doing that, we have seen the people over and over again making alliances with other nations. They're putting their trust in the things that are seen rather than in God himself, who has said that he would be willing to deliver them. That sets the tone of where we're at now in chapter 33, as now the people are going to realize that they are not going to make it out on their own power. Notice verse one of Isaiah 33. Here is Isaiah's prophecy. Ah, you destroyer, who yourself have not been destroyed, you traitor, whom none has betrayed. When you have ceased to destroy, you will be destroyed. 
And when you have finished betraying, they will betray you. Let's start with by identifying that the destroyer here is Assyria. And the prophecy directs itself to Assyria and saying, uh, you have betrayed and now you will be betrayed yourself. Ah, you are a destroyer now, but you are going to be destroyed. But so interesting to say, well, you have betrayed somebody or a nation. And because of that, you will be betrayed as well. And the likely image that's coming here is if you remember in 2 Kings chapter 18, you have Hezekiah as the king. And Hezekiah's idea in dealing with Assyria is to pay them off. They will pay tribute. Assyria says, we are going to wipe you out. And Hezekiah says, how about this plan? Instead of you completely destroying us, we will pay you everything that we have. The text tells us that Hezekiah paid 300 talents of silver, 30 talents of gold, all the silver and all the gold that was in God's temple, as well as all the silver and gold that was in the king's palace. And so they paid tribute to basically get Assyria to back off. Well, guess what Assyria did? They took the money and attacked anyway. And that seems to be why this is given now. Oh, Assyria, destroyer, you were given money and now you have betrayed the very thing that you said you would do. You said that you would go away, but instead you've taken the money and now you've brought on an attack. And that now has finally crippled the people. Notice now Isaiah picks up the prayer now in verse two. Oh, Lord, be gracious to us. We wait for you. Be our arm every morning, our salvation in the time of trouble. At the tumultuous noise, peoples flee. When you lift yourself up, nations are scattered. And your spoil is gathered as the caterpillar gathers, as locust leaps, it is leapt upon. The Lord is exalted. For he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness. And he will be the stability of your times. Abundance of salvation, wisdom and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. And so after describing the problem of Assyria, now Isaiah is going to simply tell them, here's what's at stake. You have tried to rely upon yourselves over and over again, and it has led to failure. You tried to pay off Assyria thinking that was going to work. It hasn't. You thought that Egypt was going to be your salvation. It hasn't worked. And so what we are reading about here is it seems the people are now finally turning to God. And Isaiah acts as an ambassador for the people in this prayer to God in verse 2. and says, be gracious to us, be our salvation, be the arm of strength to be able to save us. And I think it is so fascinating that it seems to me that this is what self-reliance does, is that not only is it constantly a failure, but then once it fails, what do we do? But, uh uh-oh, God save us. And that's what they do here. 
We have exhausted every avenue of self-deliverance. We have tried to get every nation on our side. We've paid every dollar that we owed. And we're still in the exact same trouble. So, uh-oh, maybe we should turn to God and He'll be able to help us out of this crisis. And how often God is treated as the God of last resort. We've tried everything else by our own might, our own wisdom, our own power. And after exhausting all of our options, now maybe we'll call upon God for help. And that's now what the issue is here is the people say, you know what? God is powerful and his very voice. He can make these armies leave. He can make them run. And yet here is God saying, why do you wait this long? That he was calling for this back earlier in this book, chapters upon chapters ago. Trust in me. Back with King Ahaz in chapter 7. Trust me and I will deliver you. And instead the people turn and look to their own strength. They look to their own power, their own wisdom and might. And every time that fails. And I wonder then how many times that has to happen in our lives to not recognize that it is revealing a lack of faith within us. It is revealing that we will not trust in God. We have to trust in ourselves. And only when we finally realize that we can't fix it ourselves, then we finally turn to God. Why is it That we have to have our lives devastated before we'll turn ourselves over to God. So often that's the case. It's only in the time of crisis, only when every option now has been completely used, do we say, ah, God, now save us. And you see that with the people. Look at verse 7. Behold, their heroes cry in the streets. The envoys of peace weep bitterly. The highways lay waste. The traveler ceases. Covenants are broken, cities are despised, there is no regard for man. The land mourns and languishes, Lebanon is confounded and withers away, Sharon is like a desert, and Bashan and Carmel shake off their leaves. There is this realization that is total destruction. We are ruined. We are completely empty. And you see that picture, the highways lay waste, the envoys of peace. They thought they had these alliances and they weep bitterly. They're not going to help. They're not going to save. And so the covenants have been broken. And now finally they will turn to God. Now they will finally look to him as this final moment. And look at what God says that he would have done for them. Look, Go back to verses 5 and 6. Notice this picture in the midst of this. The Lord is exalted. For he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness. Now listen to this in verse 6. He will be the stability of your times. Abundance of salvation. Wisdom and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. I think that's a precious statement right there. And doesn't everybody want stability in life? He says, I would be your stability in your times. I would come to you and stabilize what is happening if you would put your trust in me. If you would rely upon me, he says, I will give you abundant salvation, abundant wisdom, abundant knowledge. I would pour these things out to you and stabilize your life and stabilize these times. And here's the key to it all. Verse 6, he says, the fear of the Lord is to be your treasure. 
That is what you should have zeroed in on. The fear of the Lord will be the treasure that you need. Does that ring a bell to you of what the scriptures speak of like Proverbs? And remind us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is everything. That is the basis of stability. That is the basis of wisdom. It's the basis of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the basis of stability for life. And yet so often we wait for life's disasters to finally come to that realization that maybe we should turn to the Lord. Maybe we should seek His knowledge. Maybe we should fear Him. Maybe we should now seek out what He has to say in the matter. How often we wait for that at the very end. When we could have avoided disaster in the beginning. If we had simply been seeking the ways of the Lord. And so now consider how God is going to respond to this. The people now finally cry out to the God as a last resort and say, save us, help us, deliver us. Look at verse 10. Now I will arise, says the Lord. Now I will lift myself up. Now I will be exalted. You conceive chaff. You give birth to stubble. Your breath is a fire that will consume you. And the peoples will be as if burned a lime like thorns cut down that are burned in the fire. Here you are far off what I have done. And you who are near acknowledge my might. Here is a great picture because now after all of that, God says, now I will arise. Now I will be exalted. Now I am going to act. And we have to ask the question, why? Why now? Why is it now at this moment that God says he will act? Why doesn't he act earlier? Why doesn't he deliver his people before all this calamity and crisis? And I submit to you the location of where this comes in tells us everything. Verses 7 through 9 describe the brokenness of the nation, the brokenness of the people. They have been so shattered that now they are finally to humble themselves before God and pray to God for deliverance. And now God will act because of that. How often the scriptures remind us that this is exactly what God describes and what God teaches us. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. When the people finally recognized that they needed to rely upon God, that they could not solve their own problems, when their pride had been shattered, and they said, we need to turn to God, now God says, now I will arise, now I will act. And we must never outgrow that. We must never outgrow the ability to come before God with broken, contrite hearts, with deep humility, recognizing that we are nothing of ourselves, that we completely need God, and that He is the place to turn to first. And when we do that, God says, now I will act. Now I will be exalted. Stand back, he says, and watch the Lord at work. And notice how he describes it in verses 11, 12, and 13. Verse 11, he drives it home where he says, you conceive chaff. You give birth to stubble. Your actions do not accomplish anything. This is how God views our efforts. You think you're going to fix it on your own? You're not fixing anything. 
You think your self-reliance is going to save you? It's not. Your plans will not save you. Your power will not deliver you. Your might cannot give you what you need. I really think that we've been um, deluded by our upbringing and culture to think that you can do anything that you put your mind to. You can save yourself. You can accomplish anything that you want. And God says, no, you can't. No, you can't. This is a message that is contrary to the scriptures. God says, rely upon me, recognize that you cannot do it. And God says, I will come in and do what needs to be done. I will be your stability. I will be your salvation. I will give you wisdom and knowledge that you need for life. But stop relying upon yourself and thinking that you have it. You don't. And so he says, here's what your actions are. It's like chaff, which is exactly the case. All their efforts for deliverance had failed. Egypt has not saved them. Their payment of all the gold and silver in the treasury has not worked out. And I submit to you, the problem just comes down to stubborn independence. It's just stubborn independence. I've got this. I can do it. I don't need anybody's help. I'm okay. I don't need to bother God. I've got this. We just have that kind of thinking. And I want us to consider that God absolutely hates that. Faith means trusting in God, not trusting in myself. And God hates it when we trust in ourselves because it reflects a pride and arrogance on our part that says, I've got this. I don't need God. I don't need God for this matter. We don't need to concern God about these things. I can do it myself. God tells Judah that their efforts did nothing And so now God is going to do something. Verse 11 says their actions have caused nothing. But verse 12, God is going to act and he is going to destroy. The peoples will be as burned alive and the thorns will be cut down and will be burned in the fire. Why? Verse 13, for the glory of God. So that those who are afar off will hear what I have done and those who are near will acknowledge my might. One of the things that I love to see over and over again in the scriptures as God says, you want to know why I'm going to act for my own glory so that the world will praise me like it ought to praise me. I'm not doing it for you. I'm doing it for me. I'm doing it for my own glory so that people's near and far will acknowledge my might and acknowledge my power. And so it's a great reminder to us is that this isn't a display of our might and glory as if we do these things ourselves with a dependence upon God who can accomplish all things. And now watch how this turns. Verse 14. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? A great question is asked. 
They realize now, we have messed up. We have failed. We have not trusted in God. We have turned ourselves into all other places to try to find help and relief. And it has failed. We need God to deliver us. And now the question goes up here. As these sinners now fear and the godless are trembling, who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? And if you hadn't read ahead, based upon what we've read, what would you think God's reaction or answer to that would be? To me, the answer would be nobody. Who can dwell with the consuming fire? Any of you want to dwell with fire? I mean, the imagery in and of itself begs a no one. And on top of it, these people have failed immensely. They have not trusted in God. They have been godless. From chapter 1, Isaiah is pummeling them and saying, You are full of sins and iniquities. Your hands are red. Your sins are reaching to the sky. You are full of idolatry. Who can dwell with this consuming fire? And I think the answer that would have been implied in their hearts would have been, No one. But listen to what God says as the answer. Verse 15. He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly, who despises the gain of oppressions, who shakes his hands lest they hold a bribe, who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed, and who shuts his eyes from looking on evil, he will dwell on the heights. His place of defense will be a fortress of rocks. His bread will be given to him. His water will be sure. Who can dwell among those who can dwell with this consuming fire? Those who show true repentance is essentially the sum of the answer. Those who are living this radically transformed life. Listen to what he says they're supposed to do. Walk righteously. Speak uprightly. Despise oppression and the gain that comes from it. Don't hold a bribe. Don't listen to things that are toward bloodshed. Shut your eyes at looking at evil. These are the ones that God will allow to dwell with him. I want us to see that the answer is not, well, you need to offer more sacrifices or offer up more worship. And if you would just... Get some more animals on the altar. Then you can dwell with the consuming fire. It's not the answer. Who can dwell with the consuming fire? Those who turn their lives around to meet the holy demands of God. Those who turn their lives to refuse evil. And I love the the picture that's in verse 15. They stop their ears of hearing bloodshed. They don't want to hear of evil. It is not their desire to participate in evil. They do not enjoy listening to things that are sinful occurring. They don't relish in that. There is no joy or entertainment or satisfaction in seeing evil or listening to evil is what he says. Way to think about that. Way to think about if we enjoy watching sinfulness. If we are entertained by that, if we enjoy hearing about those kinds of things, if that is something that gives us satisfaction and joy, he says that my people who can dwell with me, they don't want to participate in it. They don't even want to hear it. They don't want to see it. They don't want to view it. They don't want to participate in it. They want nothing to do with it. 
They keep their ears and their eyes from it. That's a challenge in our world today, friends. Because evil is glorified, it is normalized, it is presented to us all over the place. And we must make sure that every time we witness it or hear of it, we are repulsed by it and are not entertained or satisfied by it. We cannot allow our ears or eyes to become callous and dull to think that these things are acceptable. We must keep a sense of justice and righteousness and holiness so that when we see evil, it is sickening to us and we do not glorify it and we do not enjoy it. We're in a time right now where entertainment finds that to be the great joy. The things that we listen to, the things that are shown, movies, television, news, glorify all the wrong things. And we ought to be appalled by it. And that's what we see, he says here. They shut their eyes from that. They don't want to hear it. They don't want to see it. Instead, they live a changed life. And verse 16 is a beautiful picture. Here's what happens to those who do this, who live this changed life, who turn their minds and their ears and their eyes away from evil. Listen to how he describes it there in verse 16. He will dwell on the heights. His place of defense will be a fortress of rocks. His bread will be given him. His water will be sure. God will be your refuge. God will be your security. Rather than God being the consuming fire to whom we deserve wrath, He says, I will protect you. I will care for you. He'll give you provision. As verse 16 describes, bread given, water given. I will care for you. I will take care of you. What a beautiful picture. As God speaks of Himself, as a consuming fire and ask the question, who can dwell with that consuming fire? And God says, you can. You can dwell with me. I'll make a way for that to happen. But it does require a life change. It does require a different way of thinking, a different way of seeing, a different way of hearing, a different way of acting and living. But you can be with me. It is possible. And that's where verses 17 to 24 now end up. Listen to verse 17. Let's go ahead and read all of it. But verse 17 is just staggering. Your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. They will see a lamb that stretches afar. Your heart will muse on the terror. Where is he who counted? Where is he who weighed the tribute? Where is he who counted the towers? You will see no more the insolent people, the people of an obscure speech that you cannot comprehend, stammering in a tongue that you cannot understand. Behold Zion, the city of our appointed feast. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, an untroubled habitation, an immovable tent whose stakes will never be plucked up, nor will any of its cords be broken. But there the Lord in majesty will be for us a place of broad rivers and streams where no galley with oars can go, nor majestic ship can pass. For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. 
your cords hang loose. They cannot hold the mast firm in its place or keep the sail spread out. Then prey and spoil and abundance will be divided. Even the lame will take the prey. And no inhabitant will say, I am sick. The people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. Verses 17 through 24 now turn on this story as the people are condemned for lacking faith in God. And God now says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to respond with grace. Verse 17, your eyes will see the king and your land will be vast, he says. Now. What we're going to observe right here is that this is really interesting because so many read this and go, I don't know what to do with this. (laughs) I don't know what to make of this because how does this apply to Judah dealing with Assyria? When was Judah's land ever vast? When was it ever afar off? And the answer is it never was. It never was. Though Assyria is going to be defeated in only 80 years, it's all going to start turning the other way again. And a new nation will rise up and absolutely destroy. In fact, consider the words that are there in verse 20, that Jerusalem will be an immovable tent, untroubled habitation, stakes that will never be plucked up. Its cords will never be broken. And everybody who writes down goes, I don't know what that's referring to. Well, it's not referring to a physical fulfillment in the days of Assyria and Judah is the issue. This is this typological fulfillment that God is saying, I will deliver you from Assyria, but something bigger is going to come along. You are going to see the king in his beauty. The nation will not be exterminated, but God is going to appear and you are going to see him and his land is going to be vast. And that's what makes words like when Jesus comes along and says, most are the pure in heart for they're going to see God. A summary of what this is saying. Who are the people who are going to see this? Whose eyes is he talking about? It's what he's been saying from verses 14, 15 and 16. The people who have the transformed life, who do not turn their eyes to evil, who will not listen to bloodshed. He says, your eyes will see the king and you will see how vast his land is, how vast his kingdom is. This is not speaking of physical boundaries to Israel. It is speaking of Christ's physical boundaries of a kingdom that rules over all the earth. And he says, you're going to see that king, that king, Christ is going to come and his kingdom, his land is going to be vast because he's going to rule over all the earth. This is what Isaiah is picturing and looking out for. And that's how he can make the promise in verses verse 20 that this people will live in security. The nation of Judah never lived in security. Jerusalem would be destroyed over and over and over again. It can't be referring physically to say, well, their cords will never be plucked up. Jerusalem was never an immovable tent. And I believe that's why he uses in verse 20 the, also the terminology Zion. He's looking out to a glorious time with his glorious kingdom and the people who will belong to Christ the King 
And he says, when he comes, there's going to be liberation and there's going to be security and there's going to be permanence. There is a beautiful picture of how God is going to deal with his people. And so I want you to see that mixture because verse 19 is definitely the putting away of Assyria. No longer are these uh, people with a foreign tongue going to trouble you. It's just like Isaiah 7 or 2 Samuel 7 where you have a mixture of there's a prophecy being fulfilled. Now God is going to deliver you, but he's not just talking about right then. He's looking for something bigger and saying there's something glorious is going to come when this king arrives and he's going to save his people. Notice also an image here in verse 21. The Lord will be or said, but there the Lord in majesty will be for us a place of broad rivers and streams. In Zion, God is going to be this river and stream. Now, the reason why that is so interesting is because guess how many rivers there are in Jerusalem? (laughs) Not a one. And yet he says, guess what Zion's going to be? The Lord is going to be like rivers flowing out of Zion, which matches so well like Ezekiel 47, where he describes the temple is going to be rebuilt and rivers and streams of water are going to flow out. When we read Old Testament prophets speaking of rivers and streams flowing, it is always an imagery of God pouring out his blessings on the people. You are going to see the king. His kingdom and land is going to be vast and he is going to be your blessing he will be a river and stream to you he is going to provide for you he is going to save you and deliver you and that's why verse 22 is so powerful the lord is our judge and that's not a bad thing the lord is our lawgiver that's not a bad thing the lord is our king and notice how that ends he will save us So it's a picture of hope, a picture that when the king comes, he is going to be our lawgiver, our judge, our deliverer, our savior. He will save us. He will bless us. Who is going to receive that blessing? Who is going to have God as their savior and their deliverer? Back to 15 and 16. Those who turn their eyes away from evil. Those who shut their ears to bloodshed, those who are changing their lives in conformity to God, who put their trust in God rather than trusting in the physical, trusting in other things, not people who are self-reliant, but people who fully trust their lives into the hand of God. Can I bring in 23 and 24? We'll have to do some Wednesday nights in Isaiah because there's so much in this text that I don't have time to bring out. Verse 23 is amazing because I think he now turns to Judah and says, you're a mess. He pictures it like a broken down boat. Your cords hang loose. They cannot hold the mast firm in place or keep the sail spread out. (laughs) I'm going to be rivers and nobody's going to come against you. That's he uses this boating imagery back in verse 21. No majestic ship shall pass. Nobody's going to come against my people. But no, that's not because of your might or your strength or your power. You are a mess. You can't even hold a sail straight. But listen to what he says. Even though you're a mess, what's going to happen? He says the lame will be able to take the spoils. (laughs) Wow. 
God is going to bring such an amazing deliverance, such a victory, that even the broken and the lame, He says, they will succeed. They will receive these blessings as well. So that verse 24 concludes with this powerful statement. No inhabitant will say, I am sick. Now we know we're not talking physically, right? No one in Jerusalem will say, I am sick. Ah, no, we're looking bigger here. We're looking spiritually. What a picture when he says what he means is spiritually, because he concludes that by saying they won't say they're sick. Because all their sins are forgiven. The king is going to come. And you're going to see him in his beauty. And his kingdom and his land is going to be vast. And his judgments are not going to fall upon his people. Instead, these people are going to experience from the consuming fire. Grace. The consuming fire is going to dispense abundant grace. To those who refuse self-sufficiency and independence. To those who will experience a transformed life. And so I want you to just end by noting. These people had completely failed in trusting God. Completely, utterly failed. They have trusted in everything in anyone else but God. They have sold off the gold and the silver in the temple. Just to try to preserve themselves and it didn't work. And God says, even after you failed and you're trusting me, you can come back to me and I will be your king. I will be your judge. I will be your lawgiver. I will forgive your sins and I will save you. It's not too late. It is not too late to find God after failure. It's not too late to seek him, to come near to the consuming fire and not receive wrath, but instead receive abundant grace. He is calling for us. He is calling for the world to see, will you trust Him? Not trust in the world. Not trust in yourself. Do not trust in physical things. Do not put your hope in money. Do not put your hope in your job. Do not put your hope in your family. Do not put your hope in anything but God. And if you do, He says, I will keep you secure. You will be saved. And there is no fear of wrath to come. I will take care of your sins and I will bless you abundantly. Says the Lord will dwell there like rivers and streams flowing out. If you'll just turn your life over to him and stop relying on self. Pull your song books out.